0: Welcome to the Project Future podcast for people looking to launch and build their own amazing business with me, Rob Kerr. A few years ago, I asked myself, how can people considering starting a business be confident they are making the right decision and how can they improve their chances of success? The answer has become my book titled Project Future, Six Steps to Success as Your Own Boss. A Facebook group called The Project Future Club, where we support each other to launch and build our own amazing businesses and this podcast where every Tuesday a business owner shares their story including great tips about what to do and what not to do when launching or growing a business to empower you to make better decisions on your own journey. You'll find the show notes and transcripts at robker.co.uk So in these uncertain times if starting a business could be the right option for you and your family read the book join the Facebook group and enjoy the show now let's move on to this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of the Project Future podcast. My guest this week is Paul Cash, a creative entrepreneur on a personal mission to humanize B2B marketing. In the past 20 years, he successfully founded a business recognized as the fastest growing marketing agency in the UK, published a book, won over 30 industry awards, been recognized as one of the top 20 most influential B2B marketers. In 2013, following the sale and exit of his previous company, he set up Rooster Punk. In just five years, he turned the agency into a multi-award winning business and the go-to name in B2B storytelling. His client experience covers brands like Funding Circle, Crowdcube, Microsoft, HP, Samsung, and many others. Paul regularly speaks at industry events, delivers keynote sessions, as well as runs storytelling workshops, and acts as a guest speaker at global marketing events and offsites. At the weekends, he spends his time on the football and rugby fields of Surrey, coaching his two boys. He's a lifelong Everton fan, has some pretty mean skills in the kitchen, loves Game of Thrones and billions, and if he could get a hole in one before he dies, he'd be a very happy man. In this episode, Paul explains. How he first went public with his marketing ideas. What happens when his first business went from 2 to 100 people in only 4 years. What he did to find the next step after his first business was acquired. Why being innovative can feel like pushing water uphill. How every small business is on a tightrope. The three languages that every B2B marketer and small business owner needs to understand. What you can achieve by identifying unconscious needs. Why you should adopt a challenger mindset the trend towards conscious capitalism, the five principles you can use to humanise B2B marketing, and finally, why naivety can be your biggest weapon. Let's have a listen. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Very well. Thank you. And I'm delighted to have you on the show today. Firstly, congratulations on publishing your book, Humanising B2B. <laughs> It's a great experience, isn't it? It's a
1: great journey, yeah. And obviously, I'm still maybe right at the beginning, so it's uh, been eventful so far for sure. Lots more to come.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And so, when your your, when your PR team got in touch and introduced you, and I saw that we we shared a publisher, I was like, wow, that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, great starting point, certainly. So, I'd love you to start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got your passion for marketing in general and specifically B two B marketing.
1: Yeah, so. I guess I'm one of those lucky people that the only thing that I've ever wanted to do was work in the creative industries. And so as a young teenager, I used to write adverts in my bedroom, along with poetry and other forms of creative communications. And that led me to sending off to London agencies. I used to live in the north of England. I used to send to London agencies, pick up a copy of what was then the Yellow Pages and try and find the creative director of Leo Burnett and send him some of my creations and when I look back now, they must have pissed themselves laughing because somewhere in a drawer is probably some of those ideas that made London creative directors laugh that I uh, put together. But uh, that then took me to a work experience for two weeks in a in an agency that was called Reuters of Manchester, which is now uh, McCann Manchester. I wanted to be a copywriter, I think, to start with, but wasn't really quite as sure what to do. But ended up going to university, did a business studies degree, and then as part of that, a placement year at a company called Hewlett Packard, and they were a great American tech company. I didn't really understand what technology was. It was quite an emerging sector. I had the most amazing year there. Obviously, that was B2B. So my first job, as it were, was working in a kind of a product marketing environment. And then when I left uni, I got a job in a small provincial agency. Tech was the growing sector. They said to me, can I be kind of a, a combined account exec, new biz exec? And off I went knocking on doors trying to get opportunities to pitch for projects. And I was pretty successful, and then that inspired me a couple of years later to go and set up my own agency called Tidal Wave, which was one of the very first tech marketing agencies in the UK. So I followed an innate passion, effectively, and I've always loved B2B. Like most people, I fell into it by accident rather than by design, Um, and it's been an amazing place of change, and I'm really excited to see where it's come from and where it's going to go.
0: Yeah, I love it, and I love how you reference back to your teenage years then, and that that resonates a lot with me in in terms of as a natural project manager that I am, and some of the projects that I I used to manage in my teenage years that I didn't necessarily share, you know, things like mixtapes. If I made a mixtape, I'd absolutely yeah. go through the requirements, and and now you know, kind of twenty years on, twenty five years on, almost, it, it feels like that was the start of what I do as a career. So it's it's amazing how you can reflect back on those early experiences, and you've got
1: me all nostalgic, Rob tapes. I remember those days. Oh, yeah, abso- okay. <laughs> absolutely.
0: Yeah, you want to s- you want to see my my requirements documents. They were pristine and and very well thought through.
1: <laughs> but
0: no, great stuff. So after Tidal Wave, what happened? Because I, I know that you you sold that company. So how did those those kind of earlier years of your career progress?
1: Yeah. So in the beginning, Tidal Wave was a I would say an extraordinary company. It went on a tremendous growth path. We were. You know, two people in a bedroom, we were over 100 people four years later, and we rode the wave of technology within the UK market. And I guess we were quite young and naive at the time. We thought this is what success is always going to look like and be like. And we probably got caught out when the uh, bubble burst in the dot com sector in 2002 and the whole tech sector crashed. It was a micro recession. And we probably made every bad decision any business owner could make. You know, we hired expensive new business people. We diversified from our core business. We set up offices overseas. We did all these things. And uh, it was a a difficult time. And I guess the first five years, I didn't really know what I was doing. And we were incredibly successful. And then the next five was literally learning how to run a business. And that probably marked a 10-year period of my life at Tidal Wave. And then the business kind of matured naturally as the tech sector matured and I just felt it was the right time to get out. There was an opportunity for an acquisition on the table. And so we took it, did the usual two-year earn out. And then it was a question of, right, what do I want to do with my life? And this was back in 2013. And yeah, a lot of heart searching, a lot of soul searching. And what I was really excited about was I have a huge passion for B2B marketing generally. I want to make it the best it can be. I'm really excited to try to track the best young talent into B2B and for them not to kind of get their their heads turned by the brighter lights of uh, maybe our B2C cousins. And so I wanted to try and build an agency that reflected a future direction. And Rooster Punk was that agency. And so we wanted to try and bring emotion and storytelling and look at brand and purpose and all these kind of what I call master levers that weren't necessarily vogue or interesting to many clients back in the day. But... I've definitely, over the past seven years become more and more important you know we 've always been trying to fight against the the idea that b two b is just a lead generation engine, and we all kind of know it's far more than that, and so that 's the journey i 've been on with roots of the Punk.
0: Yeah, I love it. And it, it takes time, doesn't it? I say I, I can I, I can feel what you're saying when you you know you, you did that soul searching and worked out, okay, what is the next direction? Because it absolutely takes time to clarify that and and it doesn't always come naturally, does it, to work it out? But when it does come and you know that you've settled on the right answer, it's a great feeling.
1: Yeah, there's always two ways, isn't there? I've always been one of those kind of people who've wanted to push and innovate wherever mm-hmm. I've been. And innovation, while it might sound exciting, it's incredibly difficult to do. Markets change very slowly. The mindset of the people you're selling to change very slowly. And you can feel like you're pushing water uphill most of the time. And you need, the, you need a break. You need a market change, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a recession, whether it's something exceptional happens to kind of tune people's brains away from the old world to the new world. And when I set up Brewster Punk in 2013, you know we thought storytelling was going to be the thing. You know, We got really excited about it all. But it was really account-based marketing that took off back in those early days. And I guess we've been waiting for the past seven years for storytelling and emotion to be the next thing that hits B2B. And so it's been a long journey, but I'm full of belief. And I guess, you know, advice to any business owner out there, you know, believe, 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 you know, you see it on X Factor when they say, you know, however many knockbacks you get, you've got to keep on trying. And the same is true in business. You know, you yeah. need to keep on pushing and believing to a sensible point, of course. Um, but it's that belief that really takes you places
0: yeah that's great it it really is and and there's always that there's that doubt isn't there there's it comes up a lot on the show you know that there's that the moment where you don't think it's going to happen and then suddenly it all clicks and suddenly something comes together so
1: yeah every small business you're always one phone call away from oblivion or you're one phone call away from success you know it is literally a tightrope
0: absolutely so there's three languages I understand that you you talk about there's the there's the products language there's the customer language and there's emotion uh, which you've you've touched on a, a couple of times already so I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about those three and and why emotion is so key.
1: Yeah, so I guess the inspiration point really was looking back at um, Simon Sinek's Golden Circle. He managed to you know ten plus years ago put into the world this really simple model about your company's why, what, and how. And I tried to do something similar in homage to Cynic. I call it the golden triangle. And it's just a reflection of the different languages that you need to learn and understand and put into practice within B2B. And So you take the triangle. And when you look at the base of the triangle, we talk about there the language of the product. And that is the language that every person, whether you're sales, marketing, or engineering, needs to learn when they enter a company. It's the speeds and fees, the functional, the technical stuff about what your products or services do. And for the most part in B2B, that language was thought to be the only language, i.e. you understand it and you communicate the speeds and fees to your customers and everyone will buy what you do and the company will be amazingly successful. But B2B has evolved away from that. And over the kind of, I guess, the past five to seven years, we've seen increasingly what I call the language of the customer. So that's kind of the next tier up in the, in the triangle. And this is all about you know that detailed understanding and empathy about who your customers are what they need what they care about and really kind of aligning yourself to their problems and issues rather than your products and that 's totally where b2b is at this moment we 've managed to graduate away from just thinking about the language of products to now looking at the language of product and the language of the customer together but right at the top of the pyramid is what I call the language of emotion and this is kind of the final language that we need to master in order to become you know experts in in understanding people, which, you know, is the mainstay of of business to business. And the language of emotion really is knowing how to sell. It's the psychology and the understanding of how people buy. And storytelling is a key vehicle and a key tool that you can use to really land that emotional punch. So that's the kind of the thing, the base of the pyramid language of the product, the middle segment, the language of the customer, and the top of the pyramid, uh, the triangle, is the language of emotion.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I can see how that's so much more common in B2C world, in terms of getting that connection with the end customer. But at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of people work for businesses, you think of it in charities more naturally, where people are happy to to be in that environment, because they're passionate about the cause. But there's a lot of people that work for specific businesses that really do care about what those businesses offer and the problems that they solve for for their customers. So how does that form you know part of of understanding that emotion and how you can connect with your customer in, in that respect in order to get their attention and and to to empathize with them? Well I think there's
1: two sides to so it. Obviously, you know B2B is a very sales driven environment. And in the old world, you know, you relied on your salespeople to be that emotional center build those relationships for your customers. That was it. And all they needed is trade catalogues and brochures to be able to go into and put in front of a customer and the deal would get done. But obviously through the, the advent of the internet and new technology, those kind of big expensive sales reps have become a dying breed. And there's been far more reliance now on the brand, the website, content, et cetera, to do the job of the sales guy. But most customers don't look at it like that. They kind of just still put the function and the form and the features and the technical stuff front and center on their websites. And that, I guess, is the big challenge emotionally is trying to help businesses and brands understand that they need to make that vital emotional connection. And I talk about it often is, you know, you need to earn the right, not expect it, to be able to talk about your products or what you do. You need to earn the right. Whereas most companies just expect it. And that is really where you've got to get into the emotional bit, really understand your customers. Why are they going to spend five seconds, five minutes of their day understanding what you do as a business, reading some of your content? You need to be engaging. You need to be interesting, maybe a little bit quirky. You need to break that kind of psychological bubble that says you're irrelevant and make yourself relevant.
0: Yeah. You know, there's an example that you use in the book in terms of the campaign that you did for Samsung fairly early on in the in, in Rooster Punk. And that really talks about how you moved away from features and you know moved onto the emotional side and were able to compete with with bigger agencies at the time. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that campaign and some of the psychology behind that.
1: Yeah, I mean, um that was probably back in 2017. I think we were about 10 people at the time and really just trying to cut our way and find our way in the world of B2B. And we got the opportunity to pitch for a very significant you know, two or three million pound piece of business um, for Samsung B2B. And the trigger for that was for the first time ever, Samsung mobile phones were put into the business to business category. So our challenge was how do we sell, it was at the time, the S7 devices to small, medium businesses and uh, fleets of devices to large corporates like HSBC. And we knew we were up against um, some seriously big London agencies and some other big B2B agencies. And when we got the brief, the brief was very much a speeds and feeds brief, which was the Samsung S7 beats the Apple iPhone for all these reasons. Stronger Gorilla Glass, better battery life, et cetera, et cetera. But it really was a, a battle against the iPhone, which to a certain extent was the accidental hero of, of business owners. You know, every, every person had an iPhone. And so we knew that if we just kind of went in with a straight features war, a, we were not going to win the pitch, but B, it wouldn't have made a dent in terms of the sales targets for Samsung. So we really went back to what we believed in as an agency, which is, right, what is it the emotional core and what's going to you know turn heads and make a difference in, in, in winning the pitch? And so the insight that we leveraged was that it's still true today, as it was 50 years ago, that when you get home from work, your wife, your kids, your partner still says, Daddy, Daddy, have a good day at work. And actually, your response to that question is more and more dictated by the technology fails that you have during your day, but specifically on the way back from work, so that final commute home. So, you know, Apple iPhones at the time had notoriously bad battery life, so if you're trying to make a call, you know, 6 o'clock, you know, a new business call, your battery might have died. The Gorilla Glass or the glass on it wasn't particularly strong, so you could have gone for work. Had a drink spill on it. The phone would have fizzled out. You need a new phone. So we wanted to kind of bring some of those kind of negative features into a bigger story. And that bigger story was more good days. And so we tried to anchor the whole campaign around this this feeling that when you had Samsung technology with you, you were able to enjoy more good days at work. And we built a whole campaign around that. It was a big experiential push. We went to, to Bristol and Manchester and Birmingham and London. And uh, the, the results were amazing. It kind of put a massive dent in the sales targets and we won several awards for it. So, yeah, really exciting. Great client to work with. Shout out to Sally Croft and the great team behind it and a really great project.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant, and I, I love how you you took that brief and and took a step back and and reevaluated what the actual answer was, and and kind of came to that conclusion because it it makes so much sense. Bring things onto a, a personal level and then add that emotional level, level into it, because I, I dare say the reason that Apple became so prevalent in the first place wasn't because of features in the first place. You know, I, I remember sort of going back kind of eight ten years when everybody had a BlackBerry. And suddenly execs started coming in with, with iPhones instead of a BlackBerry. And it was like, hold on, you know, you, could, you can do far more on a BlackBerry than you could on an iPhone at the time. But that didn't stop them wanting to migrate away from BlackBerry. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And, and to kind of move the dial on as you have in that way. So you talk about two models uh, for, for B2B buyers, effectively. So there's the fear and the the brave model. So I wonder if you can explain a little bit about how so many buyers or you know purchasers could could be stuck in the in the fear model and indeed how they can progress onto the brave
1: yeah so just for the context of your readers this is like a mental framework that i've used in the past just to try and help me understand how to break through and engage a a business audience that is just not interested in what you've got to say and so we use this expression fear it's an acronym And so the F stands for frustration. So the starting point is that, you know, most buyers and decision makers are frustrated. You know, they're frustrated with a lack of resources, lack of money, lack of investment, lack of talent, just general frustration of what they do. Um, They're incredibly evasive. So they'll go out of their way to avoid calls from suppliers. You know, they'll use ad blockers more than most people will. They're generally apathetic. So been in market long enough and seen so many bad sales pitches from different vendors promising the earth etc that apathy kind of drives a lot of their um decision making and they tend to be risk averse we kind of know this um aversion to risk which is prevalent in b2b i think the best way to describe it is that you know when it comes to making a complex decision around something that could have career limiting um consequences or cost a lot of money is that we're more scared Of making the wrong decision than we are of making the right decision. And that's called the loss aversion bias. And so when you package that fear, evasiveness, apathy, and risk aversion into place, that's your starting point. Yeah. That's what you're dealing with. Yeah. So if you market into that fear zone, you're just going to get same old, same old results. Yeah. You're not going to get anything different than maybe what you've done before. So the antidote to fear is something that I call brave. And so this is the mindset that you need to kind of obviously engage and reach audiences. And so the B stands for uh, buyer emotion. So that starting point, how do you find a way to engage on an emotional level, not just a functional level? It's about recognition of that individual that you're trying to talk to. So the way I phrase that is rather than trying to sell something to them, it's more about what can you do for them? How can you help them in their career or whatever other way? So it's not necessarily a direct sales conversation. Um, the A is about appreciation. So really trying to understand what's going on in their world, what challenges are going on in their organization. Are they going through a merger and acquisition? You know, is the business performing badly? Is there a kind of you know, a freeze on recruitment? You know, really trying to dig deep into that appreciation of their world. And you know, that's one of the real benefits of account-based marketing these days and why this brave model is relevant, because you can really try to focus on some of the, the individual specific parts of, a, of an account. V is around value. So what is the absolute nugget of value that you offer any potential customer? And then the final letter E is for engagement. So how can you master whatever creative skills and tools you need to be able to really engage a customer and kind of you know, pique their interest? So that's the fear brave methodology or mindset that I kind of put in place.
0: Yeah, I I love it and I can see how quickly that can kind of change the dynamic of of creating content to to try and appeal to, to a business, you know, and, and how you can really bring that emotion into it and just find find something that that resonates, you know, I know I've said it a couple of times but it's it, it's about making that connection, isn't it? And and treating people as human beings.
1: Yeah, and I think you know the ultimate bit is If you want to do business with anybody these days, whether it's an individual or a buying group, the more that you show that you care about who they are and the outcome you can generate for your business, the better chance you have of success. You know, so if you just go in there trying to sell something, you instinctively show that you don't care. (laughs) You know, when you go in there and try to offer something, you know, pay it forward, recognize or appreciate or do something slightly different, then you're starting to show that maybe you do care and it's the people who care the most who are probably going to win
0: yeah and the the v specifically the value element there you talk about addressing unconscious needs and that really connected with me when i read it in the book because you know in in, in my book in project future i, I talk about opportunities and perhaps making opportunities that don't exist as a small business owner you're not necessarily going to you know have a job description or somebody shout out saying hey I've got this problem can you come and fix it for me so how you talk about addressing that unconscious need finding it for your client and saying hey you may have this problem I can help you solve it you know I think that's such a, such a key point
1: yeah so yeah, it's a really good point you've picked up on so In most marketing and most sales engagements, what we're doing is we're trying to address a conscious need. So I'll use an example, you know, if a CMO wants to engage a new agency because, you know, their brand perception is going south, then that is a conscious need. And all agencies will be kind of, you know, trying to fight and pitch their agency creds and stuff to address that particular challenge. And it's a great place to be, but it's competitive. You know, and um the the alternative way of looking at it is, you know, what's not keeping that CMO awake and night there should be. And therefore trying to identify potentially an unconscious need rather than a conscious need that makes them go, Oh yeah, I didn't look at it like that. That's something new and different. And, you know, in in part, a lot of this is born from something called the challenger mindset. So there's a a couple of books about the challenger way of thinking and how to engage customers, not just directly on conscious needs, but looking at unconscious needs. So anybody looking at this who's, you know, setting up their own business or early stages, I would look at that challenger methodology and mindset because it's,
0: it's quite interesting to look at it's such a key way of thinking isn't it and just being being that bit stronger in terms of what it is that you're asking and why you're looking to do that and adding value so it's, like, it's all about it is value. and i think
1: that's the bit you know you go into a conscious buying situation you know, you could be one of five that gets shortened to one of three but when you go and look or tap into an unconscious need you're one of one yep do you mean you've got the ability to direct inform educate the client it probably means you don't have to do a pitch which saves a lot of money so you know there's lots of benefit but it's a harder place to be you need much better qualified salespeople to be able to go and identify unconscious needs than the salespeople who address the conscious need. So, you know, it's a different way of thinking, but also requires a different skill set. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So for people out there that are small business owners, new business owners, and they're they're not too sure who their market's going to be at this stage, whether they're looking at targeting B2B or, or indeed B2C, what would you say they should consider before deciding where to find their core customers? Well, that's a big question. uh, (laughs) So I
1: I think most people setting up a business these days will have a good idea about who their audience is and the challenges that, you know, those audiences have. So I'm pretty sure they'll understand whether it's a B2B or a B2C audience. I guess the challenge they'll always have is that like any business owner and any business The more time you spend trying to solve a problem for a client, the more you get locked into the speeds and feeds of that business. You try to direct everything towards a functional level. And it gets really hard to kind of take a step back and try to just emotionally create some space between you and the customer and then try to build some emotional connections that that help set you apart. So it's, it's the reason why agencies exist, because most companies need outside help to be able to get a different perspective on their marketing challenges and their customers, et cetera. So all I would say is that the beginning point is always trying to identify an individual, a customer, a set of customers that have a, you know, a, a particular pain point or challenge, and then you're obviously trying to address that. And it's often the first couple of clients you get on board that actually dictate the type of company that you're going to become. So you know I've always had the idea that you, know, you need to be customer intimate but not be customer-led so it's important that you have a vision for where you want your business to go um and you don't necessarily let your customers dictate that but you need to be intimate around their needs and and how you can help them achieve success
0: yeah that's great that's a big question and a big answer so yeah very, yeah. <laughs> very well navigated so breaking it down a little bit you know is there a big difference do you think between Marketing to private sector, public sector, and the third sector. You know, is there a distinction in in terms of how those messages should should play out?
1: You know, again, that's a really good good question. And um, you know, we talk about B two B as being this obviously broader category, but B two G, you know, business to government. Um, obviously, procurement have a large say these days, especially in large complex organisations. And I guess the role of procurement is to take the emotion out of any sales engagement so they can look impartially on vendors and try to get best price, et cetera. But there's always ways around those systems. You know, ultimately nobody wants to work with a company they don't like, you know, even if they offer the best price or what other value points. So I will say, you know, the differences between those are nuanced, but ultimately I believe that the direction of travel for B2B as a category, whether it's private, public sector, whatever, is trying to build those emotional connections you know we're seeing a new type of b2b decision maker and buyer out there you know the so called millennials are, are now 36 37 they're in buying power positions you know and they do think differently than their than their parents did and their and their predecessors and i definitely feel we're entering a new era where we are far more Conscious capitalists and profit capitalists. You know, we want to do good things. You know, there's a big drive towards sustainability and the environment and impact investing. And I just think that just general market trend is making people more emotional. And you know, businesses are responding by trying to make sure that you know they've got these emotional anchors in place, whether it's around their CSR or their ESG policy or their um, employee um, advocacy programs, or you know, many other ways. that kind of build that emotional connection.
0: Yeah, indeed. And as we come back to emotion, there's something that I I loved in the book about how you you explained about how emotion fits into a cake. So I, I wonder if you can touch on that for us.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just a really simple analogy and I think, you know, B2B is as good as B2C and making good looking cakes. Do you know what I mean? You know, you can you can look at it and goes, oh my God, I want to dive into that. It looks so yummy. But then when you bite into the B2B cake, it tastes like shit because they forgot to put the sugar in. You know, when the sugar is the emotion, the cake can still look good, yeah, but it just doesn't have that thing that we as consumers want, which is the taste, you know, to create that feeling. And B2C has been really good historically at just maybe putting too much sugar in. You know, and B2B doesn't put enough sugar in. So it really is just a, a simple analogy to say let's put some sugar in the cake. <laughs>
0: yeah it makes sense and and it's very clear as well it was it was something as soon as i read it you know i, I love it when you get things that when you get moments like that in in, in a book because you know that's what will stick with you you know when you're trying to create copy and it's hard and you've been sitting there for three hours and you've got 10 words it's that kind of analogy much like the simon Sinek stuff in terms of start with why it absolutely sticks with you and and i think that was a real moment of stood out for me in the book certainly
1: yeah, yeah. It's just the same as the old sausage and the sizzle. Do you know what I mean? You sell the sizzle, yep. not just the sausage. It's, you know, it's in that kind of <laughs> same thing.
0: Same yeah, absolutely. So the five principles of humanising B2B, I say we're relatively short on time, but I wonder if you could just touch on those five principles and how a business owner can can use those going forwards.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think the first one, um, not necessarily the most important, but is this reflection of B2B we believe, is about people, not just about products. So, you know, this product-centric mentality has been around for probably the last 40, 50 years. It's now being replaced with this idea that actually everything starts with your audiences, your customers, your employees, buyers, whatever they be. So that shift from just thinking about product to people is massive. The second thing is um, we've all seen through Simon Sinek, the surge in companies wanting to have some kind of purpose in their business. And while that might have dominated the headlines for the past decade, it really is about purpose and action. It's not just a fluffy statement. You've really got to make a commitment to your purpose, and you've got to demonstrate what's happening in your market and being able to live and breathe it. So, purpose and action is incredibly powerful. The third thing is about putting emotion at your marketing core. So, again, we talked about that the importance of emotion in B two B. Lots of data and studies that talk about how it can you know double, triple, quadruple the effectiveness of your marketing campaigns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Emotion, massively important. Something more nuanced and um, more interesting I talk about in the book is this notion of likability, something that most B2B companies don't think about, which is in my view of the world, it's the most likable brands, not the best brands that win. And you can come across as the best looking brand and you can come across as the best technical brand in in a space. But unless you're the most likable, I don't think you're really going to be able to achieve super success. So we have this whole section which talks about the likability factor in B2B. And that's not just about likability in terms of people, but likability in terms of your brand, your content, your other forms of communication. And then the final one is about using storytelling as a vehicle to be able to really engage people and to be able to kind of you know draw people in and just get this oxytocin, which is this um, neurotransmitter that runs through our bodies. When we hear a story or watch a story, our guard is dropped down. We wanna trust people more. And that trust factor obviously is hugely important in B2B, which is why storytelling really has an impact.
0: I love it. And I, I can absolutely see you know, how those steps will make all the difference to a business. And And as someone who's not a natural marketer and doesn't come from a marketing background, it's so clear as well. So it was was fascinating reading your book and and understanding the mindset of a marketer and indeed how they can make that difference. So thank you for for sharing that. And what's the future for you? What do you see next for yourself and for Roosterpunk? Well, so
1: again, although it might sound a bit cheesy, we're on this mission to humanize B2B marketing. And that's why we've written the book during the pandemic because the pandemic was actually an accelerant to change. And, you know, we've seen a lot more people now stepping forward, having to reposition their brands for a post-pandemic world, much more focused now in a lens on emotion and storytelling. So that's been great for us as a business because, you know, we've been banging the drum um, for, for change now for, you know, seven, eight years. So it's great to see that the pandemic has created a positive. And I think not just a positive in terms of the way the world is trying to reflect and be better, but a positive because I think, you know, generally customers at the other end are going to get a better response from their clients and agencies as part of it all. So we're excited that, you know, we're going through a period of growth, but like anything, we're now got new competition coming in, you know, all the challenges of running a business and growing and people and cash flow and all that kind of stuff. So we're just excited to be part of a really vibrant, exciting industry that seems to be having a moment. And I've got huge respect for, you know, not just us, but all B2B agencies, we're stepping up to the plate and really trying to take B2B somewhere new.
0: Yeah. And I wish for every success with it. And, you know, you, you you make a great point in terms of the pandemic being an accelerant to change because I I think a lot of the changes that are happening now may have happened in kind of five, six, seven years time. And yeah, ev- everything's just been moved forward. And for me, change is always an opportunity. And I, I, I'll i always look for, you know, th- those opportunities to make a difference and to step in when perhaps there's a gap. So the opportunity really is now, isn't it, for, for people to go in and do that?
1: I think so, yeah. Yeah.
0: great stuff. Well, before we finish, there's four questions that I always ask every guest on the show. So I'd love to know what your best piece of advice is for somebody thinking about starting or in the early stages of starting their business today.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to try and do this from my own experience of having set up, you know, two or three, maybe even four businesses now, which is when you're sitting there doing your revenue projections and you're trying to do whatever modeling to see if the business is viable and, you know, trying to plan your cash flow and things like that, whatever revenue you think you're going to project I will sell divided by three, okay, and if the business is still viable when you've divided it by three, then there's potentially a business there, and you need to be able to give yourself as a business owner at least eighteen months runway to get your business off the ground. if you try to do it in three months or six months or you run out of money unless you've been incredibly lucky and you'll never get that business off the ground and that can be you know, heartbreaking because, you know, oh, just if I had one more month, you know, next phone call was going to change things. So I think to give yourself the best chance, be totally realistic, smash your revenue targets by a third, see if the business is viable, Make sure you've got survival built in in terms of enough money to be able to last eighteen months, and then you can review everything. And no doubt, in that eighteen months, you probably will have pivoted three or four times to get the business off the ground. So that would be my my advice to any early stage business owner.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic of advice, and and very much pertinent in terms of the, the the pivoting because the the more you get into the reality of the business rather than the concept. The, the more you'll know and the more things will change from the original vision as well. So I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant point. So what do you know now that you wish you knew back in the early days? When I
1: first started Tidal Wave, I was 26 years old and um, I used to go into the meeting with you know the CMO of Microsoft and pitch my agency. And I, like most young people, have massive imposter syndrome. You know, what did a 44-year-old seasoned cmo one from a 26 year old kid like me you know what could i offer and after one um, bad meeting that i had it really kind of just focused my mind and i had this commitment to myself that i really wanted to educate myself so i became a massive reader of everything i could possibly get my hands on because i wanted to be you know the smart 26 year old to go into a room to be able to have intelligent conversations and so reading books Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm, Inside the Tornado, Techno Brands, Branding Books became my superpower, as it were. And I would say that, you know, any young person in business, you know, it's really important that if you do have imposter syndrome to find that superpower, find something that works for you. And I would say that, you know, naivety, and I never looked at it like this, it was only obviously retrospectively, but naivety is your greatest weapon. It's the fact that, you know, you've not done this before. It's the fact that you don't think like other people. Even if you're setting up a business that, you know, you maybe got two years' experience of. You haven't got 30 years experience of it. And actually, that naivety is what creates real breakthroughs. You think differently, you do things differently. You do things instinctively. And that's how, you know, new companies arise with changing views and changing mentalities, changing processes, etc. So one is that belief in yourself, find your superpower and embrace your naivety. Don't be scared of it.
0: Yeah, brilliant stuff. And, you know, it's it's all about digital first. I can see how that how disruption happens, you know, on a much bigger scale than a a small business owner. But the analogy works the same way that, you know, you're not dealing with legacy stuff. You know, there's there's nothing there that could either help you make bad decisions or necessarily delay choosing the right investments going forwards. And I, I think that works for so many businesses that are disrupting. And, you know, and it works on a personal level as well. So, yeah, it's a a really, really good point. Okay, so is there a resource uh, that you'd specifically recommend? So be it a a website, a book, you named a few just then, um, a a podcast, anything out there that, that you think would really help people in the early stages of their journey? Yeah, I, I thought
1: long and hard about this, actually. I don't think there's necessarily anything specific. I mean, I think Audible is a great tool. You get the double whammy. You can go for a walk and listen to an audio book. So, you know, you're, you're maximizing your time, which is obviously very important to any uh, self-starter or business owner. But I would say in terms of the best advice is just talk to potential future customers. Yeah, whatever it takes to get in front of somebody, whether it's over a Zoom call or coffee or whatever, talk to them. Try and find out what it's like to live in their world. Try to understand the pressures and stresses and emotions that exist, and the more you can do that, the more you're going to be able to adjust your own business to be able to service and and, and meet those meet those challenges. So, get into the real world as quickly as you can. You know, there's yeah, lots of great, great stuff in books, and they're great for inspiration, but actually, there's nothing better than just talking to a customer or a potential customer.
0: Yeah, indeed, making it real, isn't it? And sort of yeah. bringing it in, into reality and and getting people's opinion. And that's you know, it's a really, really, really good point. So, is there a guest you'd recommend for a future episode of the show? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, my nomination would be of a client of mine. He is uh, Luke Lang. He is the joint CEO and also the acting CMO, at an amazing business called CrowdCube. And I just saw, literally on LinkedIn, um, an hour or so ago, that he's now hanging his boots up at, Link- at um, CrowdCube and-, and moving on to a- to a new role. So, he's an amazing, brilliant person who's achieved so much in his career and still has loads to do so my recommendation
0: is for luke lang of crowdcube well fantastic recommendation and for regular listeners of the show going back to episode 22 with with al Gehry, um, so Al put his business on Crowdcube very early on in the day at, at ZigZag Global and uh, worked through Crowdcube at a couple of rounds of investment that followed before selling the business. So, yeah, uh, amazing stuff that Luke's done with that business. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I've I not been on LinkedIn in the last hour, so I was not aware that he was moving on. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, f- fantastic stuff to uh, to learn more about that. So thank you. What a brilliant recommendation. You're welcome. And, and just finally, if people want to know more about you, And RoosterPunk, where should they go and what should they do?
1: Yes, this is the sales pitch bit, yeah? Okay, so so you can go to (laughs) roosterpunk.com. Obviously, that's our agency website. Um, You can buy the book, Humanising B2B, on Amazon. There is a website, humanisingb2b.com, which has got more information. Or you can just network or contact me on LinkedIn. Pull cash. Pretty simple to find.
0: Great stuff. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's been fascinating talking to you today. You've shared so much value and um, I'm amazed how much we've got in in 40 minutes. So thank you so much.
1: Rob, awesome. Really appreciate you having me on the show.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For my top three takeaways this week, I'll start with what Paul says about how he started by creating adverts and sending them to London agencies, because I think it's such a key point. Those seeds are in everyone as there were in me as a project manager planning and creating mixtapes and tracking the Tour de France in a notepad. As you're thinking about the next step of your working life, what can you draw on from those early years that perhaps you've never quite followed through, but equally has never quite left you? Considering others, who in your life is at that stage now, be it your own kids, nieces and nephews or friends' children, that you can encourage to help them see, create and seize opportunities that could invigorate their career and indeed their life? Takeaway 2 is considering what Paul did after Tidal Wave was acquired. The soul-searching he talks of, and taking the time to find his mission, is such a key lesson. I strongly believe that to be successful and happy in the new economy that exists today, each of us has to do something that firmly fits our sweet spot, or icky guy, of what we're good at, what we can be paid for, what the world needs and what we love doing. It's not easy to find the right answer, but the investment is worth it and what Paul's been able to achieve is a great example of what's possible. Finally, I touched on Takeaway 3 during the conversation, but Paul's point about the pandemic being an accelerant to change is so vital. Many of my guests on this show have had significant impact to their businesses as a result of the pandemic, and have gone on to make positive decisions off the back of it. The key for me is always seeing change as an opportunity, and to recognise that accelerants mean you need to act faster to seize the inevitable opportunities that will arise before anybody else does. On that point, on next week's show, I speak with the travelling copywriter, Anthony Kingsley, on being prepared for change. I look forward to your company on Tuesday morning. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep launching and building those amazing businesses that give you satisfaction and balance.